0: All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing our series above all, and uh, a few weeks ago I had the opportunity to spend some time with you, and, uh, and I focused a little bit on the context and the, the history of the church of Colossae, and what's going on here uh, is this pressure to see Christ and his gospel as less than sufficient. They're getting uh, pressure from non-Messianic Jews. They're getting pressure from, from uh, pagan Gentiles here. And, and the pressure is to supplement the worship of Christ. With legalistic and and pagan practices in order to be considered uh, what they call qualified, and so Epaphras, uh, who's come to the Apostle Paul with his concerns, has kind of given the Apostle Paul the, the lay of the land, and uh, and he's he's done this out of his love for the the Colossian church, and Paul like Epaphras is concerned as well, and so we have here the Apostle Paul reminding. The, the Colossians of just how sufficient Christ Jesus is. And this morning, uh, we're going we're gonna to see that a lot more, probably even more clearly than we've seen it in, in past weeks, and we're going to spend time uh, just wading through what exactly it is that Christ Jesus accomplishes for his church. And what Christ accomplishes for his church, he does so alone, and what Christ accomplishes for his church, he does so alone. And anybody who tells you otherwise is promoting to you a false gospel. It's what the, Paul here is concerned with in Colossians. Certainly what the Reformers were, were concerned with when they dealt with some of the Catholic church heresies that were going on. Folks have tried all throughout church history to add or to supplement the worship of Christ Jesus alone, saying that it's not Jesus alone that saves, it's Jesus plus some other stuff. And the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which has become the cornerstone, and there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which... We must be saved. So no one, no thing provides salvation except Jesus. And as we work through our text this morning, we're going to see exactly why that is. And so Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look and spend the bulk of our time on verses 21 to 23. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, it's up, at, up on the screen. This is what the Apostle Paul reminds the church of Colossae. He says this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, speaking of Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you. God, you've you've made it simple for us, Lord. You've told us in your word that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus, the Christ. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we reflect on our condition apart from Christ and we feel the weight of that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would use that to increase our gratitude for the Savior that you've provided for us in Jesus. And so thank you for your word. Thank you for reminders of the sufficiency of Christ that you give us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, you would give us humble hearts, and that ultimately your church would be built up in Christ, Lord, and that those who are here this morning that don't know you would be convicted and repent and trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you're taking notes, the first thing that you're going to want to uh, take note of is that the Colossians condition apart from Christ is our condition apart from Christ. The Colossians condition apart from Christ is our condition apart from Christ. And I don't want to move past this too quickly. In American Christianity, we don't consider our condition apart from Christ enough. That's something that we kind of brush through as as fast as possible. And maybe there's some of you that are here this morning and you've never thought deeply about your state apart from the intervening work of Jesus Christ. And there's three things in our text this morning that the Apostle Paul gives to help us kind of meditate, spend time on uh, our position apart from God through Jesus Christ, stepping into redemptive history and rescuing us. From ourselves. Three important things we need to take note of. First is this in the very first part of verse 21, the Apostle Paul asserts that we're alienated from God. That's our condition. That that literally means that we're estranged from God, that, that there's no closeness, that there's no affection. If we were to put this in terms of a a marriage, the picture would be one where the husband's no longer living with his wife. We're alienated from God, and this is a result of what theologians call original sin. It's a result of original sin. Our original sin is, is our innate corruption It's in every single one of us since the fall of Adam. The Apostle Paul, he defines this best for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. David acknowledges this in Psalm 51 verse 5. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We don't have to be taught to sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's our our default position. That's our default identity. One that's completely tainted by sin since the fall of Adam. Since he he and Eve were deceived by the serpent in the garden. And so because Adam disobeyed, sin came into the world, spread to everyone, death came into the world and spread to everyone. So if you're wondering why you have this inclination toward unrighteousness, if you're wondering why you have a body that's breaking down and that's sore and that's tired, if you're wondering why people die, the answer is original sin. It's infected absolutely everything. There's nothing beyond its influence. Paul elsewhere talks about being alienated from God because of this original sin. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And then later in Ephesians 4, he says, they, speaking of those that are without Christ, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. So, alienation is our default position. It's where every single one of us, that's the, 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 the starting point of every single person in this room. If you're not in Christ, that's your current position this morning. we those of us in Christ, we've been there at some point. Those of you who aren't in Christ, you're there currently. You're alienated from God. You're estranged from God. And, and not only are you alienated from God, but Scripture says that, that, that apart from Christ, we, 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 we want to be without God. We want to be without him. We, we, we enjoy our alienation. That's the significance of Paul saying that without Christ, we're hostile in mind in the second part of verse 21 there. We're hostile in mind, hostile, the, the, the word hostile here in Colossians chapter one, it has behind it this, this deep-seated hatred and irreconcilable hostility that's proceeding out of a, a personal hatred. So every single person in this room, myself included, we either were enemies of God, hostile in mind, or we're currently enemies of God, hostile in mind. There's, there's no middle ground In scripture, that's difficult to hear, right? We're alienated, not just alienated according to the Apostle Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we were alienated and we were hostile. We loved our alienation from God. If you have your Bibles, flip over with me to Romans chapter th- 3. You can put a thumb on Colossians chapter 1, but I want you to see this for yourself, just how far this hostility and this alienation go. Starting with verse 10, I'll wait a moment for you to get there. I just want you to see it because I don't want you to take my word for it. Paul says in Romans 3, starting with verse 10, going to verse 18, he says, and he's quoting Psalm 14 here. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Apostle Paul's not describing them out there. He's describing all of us. He's describing all of us apart from the intervening work of Christ Jesus. According to Scripture, according to this passage, it says, No one is righteous. Not only that, but no one understands, and not only that, but no one seeks for God. There's there's no there aren't any seekers. And we see the how how deep this this hostility toward toward the Lord goes. Paul says in this passage, Romans 3, he says, our throat, he says tongue, he says lips, he says mouth. He says, feet, corrupt, wicked. In other words, the, the totality of who we are stands in opposition to who God is. It's our default position. That's our original condition, every single one of us. Not just alienation, but it's one that, that doesn't fear God. God. There's no fear of God before our eyes apart from Jesus Christ. And so we have alienation as a result of original sin. And how far does that go? That it's rooted in this deep-seated hostility that we have toward the Lord and how does that manifest itself according to Colossians chapter 1? It manifests itself in being dedicated to evil deeds. We're dedicated to evil deeds. Theologians call this actual sin. We have original sin. We have actual sin. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 here, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins and once you once walked. And by the way, and I think I've told you guys this. I may have mentioned this last time I was here, but Paul calling us dead in our trespasses and sins should bring to mind a dead person, right? Should, we can't, we, a dead person can't bring themselves back to life. Right? A dead person can't restart their heart. They need outside intervention. Paul's saying we were all dead in our trespasses and our sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of, of our flesh, get this, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the outward evidence that we're alienated from God and hostile toward God is our carrying out of the desires of the body and the mind, our dedication to what the Apostle Paul calls evil deeds. Now, if you were to flip over, and we'll get to it as we continue to preach through the book of Colossians, but if we get to Colossians chapter three, we even see the Apostle Paul kind of flesh out what some of these evil deeds were at the the, the church of Colossae here. He calls it out. He says in chapter three, uh, verse five, and I'm not gonna read the passage. I'm just gonna read the list of sins that he gives to this church. Among them, some of the most prevalent ones include this, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, which is, is, is raw, strong feelings that are, aren't guided by God, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, lying, This list is such that not one single person is off the hook, right? Right? Every single person in this room fits into this category, this list of sins the Apostle Paul gets. The guy preaching to you this morning has ticked all the boxes on all of these. (laughs) Somebody escort him out. Um, (laughs) But apart from intervention, these these evil deeds proceeding from a hostile position toward God will end up destroying me, will end up destroying you. So this is our natural condition. And and I want to ask you this morning, if you call yourself a Christian, does this grieve you? Does this grieve you? In other words, do you grieve over your sin? Like I said a moment ago, American Christianity, we don't spend a whole lot of time. We get to the, the good news, right? But the good news doesn't make sense apart from the bad news. And we try to get through the bad news as quick as possible so we can spend more time on the good news. But man, we can't even receive the good news if we don't understand how desperate our condition is apart from Jesus Christ. And so if you call yourself a believer, is your life this morning, has, it, has there been a time and is there this continual time where you understand as you grow and you maximize your perspe- perspective on who God is for you in Christ Jesus and, and you become more aware of, of your own depravity, your own sinfulness as you see more and more God's holiness, does your sin grieve you? My wife is going through a, a study on the Sermon on the Mount, and in this study, the author makes a statement that many admit that they're sinners, few grieve over their sin. Many admit that they're sinners, but few grieve over their sin. Now, this concept isn't original to the author. She's pulling this from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says this, As it is, I rejoice. This is after the apostle Paul spends a lot of time with the church of Corinth telling them about how messed up things really are. And then we hear the result of the apostle Paul really emphasizing that to the church of Corinth here. And he gets the report back that they've been grieved. And he says this, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so according to the Apostle Paul, there's this godly grief that leads to life. There's this worldly grief that leads to death. There's going to be a lot of people in hell that have admitted that they're sinners. Godly grief drives repentance that leads us to our sufficient Savior. Have you experienced this? Or is your confession of sin just this intellectual a sin? Is it this quick, yeah, I'm a sinner. Of course I'm a sinner. This is the type of grief that the Apostle Paul says leads to death. And I think it's appropriate for us to spend time as the Gloucester campus together, especially as we're moving toward the launch in the fall. What better way to lead this community to Christ than leading through our repentance, leading through our trust in our all-sufficient Savior? So have you grieved? Do you feel the, the, the undeserving kindness of God in your life? Apart from Christ, we're alienated from God. We deserve that alienation because we're hostile in mind and we're dedicated to evil deeds. And as Paul reminds the Colossians of their state apart from Christ, he doesn't just stay there, right? Because if we stay there and we don't move on, then we, we, we all have no hope, right? Right? But Paul, he he moves the Colossians on after putting them in a position to to really consider the weight of their alienation from God. He moves on, and he tells them that Christ alone is sufficient. Christ alone is sufficient for the salvation of God's church. Not, Not doing good deeds, not giving to the needy, not coming to church here on a Sunday morning, not confessing your sins to a priest, not doing Hail Marys, not being baptized, not tithing. Christ alone is sufficient for the salvation of God's church, period. And why is that? And what has Christ done that would make him sufficient? First is this, the body of flesh. Verse 22, first part of verse 22 there. You guys spent time last week working through how Jesus is truly God. And not only is Jesus truly God, but Jesus is truly man as well. Man's sin, our sin, our alienation, our hostility, our evil deeds have to be dealt with in a body of flesh. They have to. That's what's required. That's the significance of the incarnation. That's the significance of us celebrating Christmas every single year. Jesus is truly God. He's also truly man. That's why Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. There's nothing lacking in Christ. There's nothing that remains unpaid in Christ Jesus. And God the Father who is wrathful toward his enemies, which again is our condition apart from the intervening work of Jesus Christ, but our God who's wrathful toward his enemies poured out every ounce of his wrath reserved for us onto Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? Right, so Jesus, he, he took on our alienation. Jesus took on our hostility. Jesus took on our evil deeds, and he hung on a cross until death while the full force of God's judgment, his wrath, was leveled against him. This is what's known as, this is a part of what's known as imputation, if you've ever heard that word in church life before. Our sins, my sin by the power of the Holy Spirit was imputed, was cast on, was put on Christ Jesus, and he received everything that we deserve from God. And Christ taking on our sin and God pouring out his wrath on Jesus allows believers to be reconciled to God allows believers to be reconciled to God, right? This this means that in Christ, when we repent and we express faith, which are two sides of the same coin, you can't have repentance apart from faith. You can't have faith apart from repentance. Those two things go together always, and only believers express that. Only believers can be reconciled to God. We're no longer isolated. We're no longer alienated from God. We're connected to Him through Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, our Father, He 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 is. As is, is Nate just prayed a moment ago, He 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 said, "Abba, Father." We call God Abba, Father. We do that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and it's. It's made possible not only because Christ took our sins, but also because he gave us his righteousness in exchange. It's another piece of imputation. So our sins by the power of the Holy Spirit are cast on, are put on to Jesus who hung on a cross in his body of flesh and God the Father poured his wrath out on Jesus. And in exchange, what do we get as believers? We get the righteousness of Christ the righteousness of Christ that allow us to be adopted sons, adopted daughters. It's the righteousness of Christ that allows us to call out to God as Abba, Father. And it's because we're reconciled to God that we're called to be holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. That's the next part of verse 22 here. Holy, holy, Holy here means to be set apart. You guys know that. It means to be set apart. and If we're Christians, we're positionally holy before God because of Christ's work alone by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're different from the rest of the world. We're different from the rest of the world. Not because of anything that we've done. This is an unmerited change in our title. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's the Apostle Paul again. We were were enemies of God, committed to, to godless deeds and God through the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit made us holy made us different, made us set apart. And the Greek word there uh, in, in holy has the, this idea behind it of, of, of this change of identity. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 verse 2, Paul says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The Greek word for saints here is the same Greek word Paul uses for holy in our text this morning. To be holy is to be a saint. God makes his enemies, you, me, saints, by conquering our hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're saints, by, by the Spirit's application of Christ's finished work, we're also above reproach. We're above reproach. Verse this. The, latter part of verse 22 here, we're above reproach pictured this, uh, this suitcase for a moment. If I had a suitcase, I should have brought one as the illustration, but a suitcase has a handle on it, doesn't it? And if I were to pick up that handle, I could take that suitcase absolutely anywhere that I want to take that suitcase. Right? Satan, the accuser, he desires to take Christians to a place of, of defeat and of depression with reminders of of who we once were. All right Satan the accuser was tempting the church of Colossae here that they must supplement their faith with legalistic and cultic practices if they wanted to truly be justified before God. That's what we see the accuser doing here to be to be above reproach in the salvific sense is it's to not be convictable when properly scrutinized. Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding. who is indeed is interceding for us. As Christians, when we're in Christ, right, we have this new identity. It's one of saint, it's one of adopted son, it's one of adopted daughter. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer hostile toward God. We desire God and we we love the things that God loves and we hate the things that God hates. When we're in Christ, we're above Satan's convictions and accusations of us because Christ's person and his work is completely sufficient to make us above reproach completely sufficient. So Paul here, he's reminded the church at at Colossae of her condition apart from outside intervention. He's also reminded the church of of the sufficiency of her Savior. And now he issues this this stern warning to them. And it would be foolish for us not to, to heed this warning. This is what he says. He says, only those who continue in their faith are true Christians. Only those who continue in their faith are true Christians. It says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And we know from other passages of Scripture, and if you want to jot them down, I actually give you a few passages too. I won't go there, but I Again, I don't want you to take my word from it, but you can write down Malachi 3.6, John 10, Romans 8, Philippians 1.6, and both Revelation 1 and Revelation 22. But We know from, from passages like these that the salvation of God's church is absolutely secure because God is the author, the sustainer, and the finisher of the faith, and, and he's unchangeable. And what Paul's saying in this passage here is that only those who are truly believers will persevere to the end. Only those that are, that are truly believers will persevere to the end. Uh, Pastor Sean, who's preaching at the Yorktown campus this morning, in order to illustrate this, he's, he's using the, the sower and the seed parable in Matthew chapter 13. So I'd encourage you to check out his sermon on it. But the Christians, they don't repent and believe in the gospel once. They don't repent and believe in the gospel just one time. And, and I think there's probably lots of us that maybe heard preaching or, had, or maybe even grown up in a church that we put so much emphasis on this called the sinner's prayer that is only a hundred years old, really. And we say that if you pray this prayer, then that's your ticket into heaven. And that's hogwash. Believers continually repent and believe the gospel. That doesn't mean we continually get saved. That means that a characteristic trait of a believer over the course of their life is one of they're in this consistent posture of repentance of sin and trust in christ jesus it's a posture of continual repentance of sin and trust in christ jesus and we're repenting and we're believing the gospel every day and and christians they don't just desire heaven we don't think of of being christians as man i'm not going to hell that's great it is great but we're thinking, man, I get to spend an eternity with God. I get to spend an eternity consumed with worship and adoration without any hindrance of sin, right? without any hindrance of my sufferings, without any hindrance of my body breaking down. I'm completely consumed with the worship of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Now, Christians don't, don't just desire heaven. We desire God. We desire God. Paul says that Christians who persevere remain stable and steadfast, according to the first part of verse 23, stable and steadfast. That's to say that they're grounded on an unshakable foundation. Christians are grounded on an unshakable foundation. The author of Hebrews says this, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The kingdom that can't be shaken is is the kingdom that's built on Christ Jesus alone. Jesus says this himself in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, 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 did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had not been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell And great was the fall of it. Listen to me closely this morning. What Jesus is saying is you you cannot reconcile yourself to God. You can't do it. It doesn't matter if you consider yourself a nice person. It doesn't matter if you're generous toward others. It doesn't matter if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. There is and there will be many generous people who claim to be Christian in hell for all eternity. Our only hope is to, to acknowledge our utter helplessness, our utter depravity, our inability to save ourselves and cast ourselves on the rock who is Christ Jesus, who alone provides stability and steadfastness. Our only hope is in Jesus. Do you feel the weight of that this morning, Coastal? Coastal? Do you feel the weight of that? Do you know that? And and, and not just intellectually know that. Do you know that experientially? Do you know that experientially? Paul says that those who continue in the faith, characteristic of those who continue in the faith, will be one of not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This one hit me hard as I studied it. The longer that I've been in ministry, the more I see public figures and people in our community and even people in our own church who, who cease to follow the Lord, who begin to see that the gospel isn't sufficient, both the bad news and the good news. They become deceived by sin's deceitfulness. They begin this journey by challenging historic orthodox beliefs about sin and about the substitutionary death of Jesus. And they often disguise their their abandonment of the faith by saying, I'm just asking questions. And anybody who shows any concern toward them is treated as if they're some sort of judgmental Pharisee. And then one day, these people begin to call righteous what the Bible calls unrighteous. What the Bible calls righteous to them becomes narrow-minded. It becomes primitive. It becomes to them even misinterpreted, hurtful, unloving. The apostle Johny has something to say about people that take this journey. He says, this is the message that we've heard from him. Heard from who? He heard from Jesus. And we, who? The apostles proclaim it to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, get what he's saying here. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice truth. We can't say that we're walking in the light. You can't say we have fellowship with God while questioning and discarding his word. And and John later concludes this chapter by saying, if we say we haven't sinned, We make him, speaking of God, a liar and his words, not in us. So according to John, those who call sin righteousness are not only liars, and those who are practicing unrighteousness are not only liars, but they're calling God a liar. It's a dangerous seat to sit in. Believers, true believers, those whose hearts have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, continue in the hope of the gospel, And so, Coastal, do do you regularly see the heinous nature of your own sin? Do you regularly repent of sin and thank God for the finished work of Jesus that's been applied to your life by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you persevering in the faith? Now, God, he's given us some reminders, and we need to be certain not to neglect or despise God's reminders to us. And the apostle Paul, he concludes our passage this morning on these reminders. One reminder is heard heard, if you're taking notes. The message that the Colossians have heard from the apostles is the one that that you and I read and by God's grace is the one that you're hearing now. It's the this message that can be summed up in First in Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the message that every prophet and every apostle in Scripture. Points to. It's the message that the early church heard. It's the message that the early church embraced. And it's the one that we have to embrace here and now. And any message, even slightly to the right or to the left, leads straight to hell. So, are you believing this morning the message of the prophets and the apostles that the Lord has given? Paul also talks about this message being proclaimed in verse 23. Proclaimed. Not only did the early church have this message proclaimed to them on the Lord's Day, but you have this message proclaimed to you here at Coastal each and every Lord's Day. This is an authoritative message. This is the very Word of God. Are you submitting yourself to the proclamation of the gospel each Lord's Day or Do you find the message boring or hardening or mind-numbing? And even more than that, are are you in relationships with other gospel-centered believers that regularly remind you of your sinfulness and proclaim to you the finished work of Jesus Christ? We need the local church to remind us of the gospel. The local church is a means, not the only means, but the local church is a means of perseverance in our faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be found in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And get this He says, but exhort, encourage, proclaim to one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And the final reminder that we get is creation. It's where the Apostle Paul leaves it for us right here. Creation. Certainly all of creation sings of, of God's common grace, but as believers right, as those of us who would say we're in Christ. God gives us, he gives us creation to remind us that he's first and that he speaks. He gives us creation to remind us that he's first and that he speaks. He's he's the author of, of our faith. He's the the finisher of our faith. God's neither old nor young. He doesn't grow in wisdom or stature. He doesn't learn. He isn't made up of parts and he's without passion. God is God is his attributes and he's unchanging and he speaks to us and he spoke creation into existence and he created us in his image and he spoke to us through the prophets and the apostles and ultimately through the word Christ Jesus who came to seek and to save God's people that are created in his image for his glory. And one day those who are found in Christ will worship him without the hindrance of sin, without the hindrance of suffering, without the hindrance of death in his new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And so creation should make us mindful of the God who saves us. And so this morning, my challenge to you, my so what to you, is to examine yourself. It's to examine yourself. Are you in Christ? If you are, how does that impact your devotion to him? And if, you, if you're not in Christ this morning, what, what are you waiting for? Right? Today's the day of salvation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the finished work of the gospel. Lord, I thank you that your Holy Spirit applies Christ's finished work to our lives. And Lord, I pray for the believers in this room, God, this morning, I pray that you would increase their confidence in their salvation, not because of anything that they've done, but because of Christ. And Lord, I pray for unbelievers in this room this morning, God. There are unbelievers in this room this morning. And and God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them. And I pray that they would forsake sin and express faith in Christ Jesus alone, who's sufficient for salvation. And so, Lord, thank you that this word that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write to a church a few thousand years ago, is relevant to us now. And it's because your word is living and active. You spoke it and you're unchangeable. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you for this day to come and worship you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.